Hey you guys, Maestro here, bringing you episode 200. Holy smokes, 200 of Maestro on the mic. Now, you're probably like, whoa, where is Brett? That's why I put this episode on. And he's coming. Don't worry, I wanted to hop on first and just say thank you. I started this podcast in April of 2018 with a lot of help from my good dude, Dr. Jimmy McKay. Jimmy, if you're listening to this, so much love for you. If you're not, that's okay too. Uh, You guys should definitely go check out his podcast, PT Pintcast. That man is phenomenal and has a heart of gold. But I wanted to hop on and thank him and thank every single one of you. This is, you know, I don't even want to call it a labor of love. It's not a labor. It's just I love doing this. The feedback I get from you guys, the interaction, the opportunities that it's allowed me, afforded me, they're just remarkable. And I thought about making episode 200 like, I don't know, a special one where I, I don't know, I talked even more. I don't, I don't know. I really didn't feel like that was what you guys wanted. So I'm going to run a regular episode, regular long Monday episode. Um, the episode coming up, you're going to hear it's with Brett Bartholomew. I love him. He's a rock star. Um, but I did want to hop on real quick and say thank you. I'll probably do a Thursday shorty about this, but I want to say thank you and Kind of, this is what I did for episode 100 also, where, or I think it was a shorty after episode 100, where I compared my current episodes to my very first one. So when I'm done rambling here, I'm going to drop in my very first episode. And I want you guys to hear how far, hopefully, things have come. You you know, the sound quality isn't as good. I, I didn't even have a pop filter at the time. My mic was still on the table. Nothing wrong with that, but I move my hands a lot and I, I kind of bang the table and you can hear it. And uh, I just wanted to put it out there so you guys remember we all start somewhere. And the biggest thing, the most important thing is that you get started. Uh, the messaging in episode number one still holds true today. And it's something that I say quite possibly in like every other episode and in, in just about every other conversation that I have with people. So I will drop that in and then we'll go right into the regular episode. But just wanted to say thank you thank you. And one more time, friends. Thank you. All right, let's do it. Episode number one of Maestro on the Mic. This is Maestro on the Mic. A podcast designed to help you change your mindset and your life. It is time for something new. Join host Dr. Shante Cofield, also known as the Movement Maestro, on a journey to see the bigger picture. Open your eyes. Find your passion and discover how movement unites us all. Let's get it popping. This is Maestro on the Mic. I'm the Maestro, and you're about to get maestro Three, two, one. Maestro here. And I wanted to talk to you about something that happened today. I was texting with one of my friends, because that's what I do all the time, and she was telling me about how she wanted to get a Nespresso maker. And my first reaction was, why in the hell would you want to get one of those? Right? I actually just got a a uh, coffee maker that is kind of like a two-in-one. It has uh, one side that you can use for making kind of like your travel mug thing and the other side that you can use for making multiple cups of coffee. Game changer, right? I had a Keurig before, but it was a single-serve Keurig, and then if anybody came over, 
you know, when friends came over, my family came over, you would be praying they didn't ask for coffee because it takes like 27 hours. So, you know, I got this new one and I was pretty pumped about it. And my friend doesn't have a coffee maker. And so she was like, yeah, maybe I'll get an espresso maker. And like I said, first reaction was, why the hell would you want to do that? But as with everything, I take a step back and I kind of try to see what the life lesson is with it. Not to sound, you know, cliche or whatever word you may want to use. But I think in this case, it, it speaks to that concept of variety is the spice of life. And that's one of the things that I tell everyone who reaches out to me and is asking about, you know, how should I start go about starting to have a social media presence or anything like that? You know, everyone else is out there, everyone's doing things, and how am I going to be any different? The reality is there are 57 different kinds of salsa on the shelf for a reason. There are three different kinds of gas stations on the corner for a reason. Variety is the spice of life. And while it may seem like just another brand to you, just another way of saying the same thing to you, it's not to someone else. Perhaps they just like how you say it. They like the analogy that you use. They like your voice. They like the font you use. You know, it could be anything. But it speaks to this concept that variety is the spice of life and you can succeed simply because of that i think far too often people really try to start something new and they just sit there beforehand trying to think about how can it be different how do i not say the same thing the reality is you know in my field this movement world it's all the same thing it's just that kaleidoscope of movement and and adam wolf my good buddy introduced me to this concept one of his quotes i think it's a benjamin franklin quote i may be wrong with that but either way he introduced me to this quote and this concept that it's all just a kaleidoscope right it's all the same information and you just turn that dial just a little bit and you end up with your take your vision and you present that to the world and that will resonate with some people and those people will become your crew your cronies your posse whatever and for other people, it won't resonate with them and they follow someone else. And that's fine. We need that. We need that variety. So, you know, long story short here, uh, the Nespresso maker giving me some insight to life today and the fact that variety is the spice of life. Don't let the fact that there are others out there doing what you want to do stop you from doing what you want to do. Your voice may be just what someone needs. Your take may be just what resonates with someone. So go out there, do whatever it is that you're wanting to do, whether it's starting a podcast, starting a social media, uh, following, I shouldn't say media following, starting, a, having, starting to have a social media presence, starting a Facebook page, starting a website, starting a blog, starting whatever. Go out there and do it. All right, variety is 100% the spice of life. Till next time, Maestro out. So, you know, learning how to ask people the right questions, Shante, is the short answer. And then actually taking stock of that because you'd be surprised. Like, when you know more about these people, it helps you relate everything you're talking about more into their language. Does that make sense? It's, 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 it's three things. It's research, relate, and reframe. Ask the right questions and actually listen. Relate to them by summarizing and, and making sure that you use their words, you understand their learning style, you understand their communication preferences. And then reframe 
what you know with how you know they like to be spoken to. Hey you guys, Maestro here and welcome back to another episode of Maestro on the mic. Today I have with me another special guest. Everyone's special, right? But the guy I got on today, he has a beard. He has a baby. He has a book. He's got a bunch of shit and we're going to talk about all of it. If you're on social media, if you're in the coaching world, the strength and conditioning world, I'm certain that you know him. If you're in the PT space, maybe not as much, but now you're going to know him. So without further ado, welcome to the show, my good friend, Coach Brett Bartholomew. Welcome, my dude. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. I'm uh, grateful to be on and looking forward to chatting with you. Dude, it has been. So let's jump in to the important stuff. First off, how's the beard? How's the baby? Uh, the beard is good. I'd rank the length right now as kind of medium, or if you wanted to go more <laughs> traditional Likert, you know, we'd probably put it at about a six and a half. <laughs> Semi-homeless, um, not really well-kempt, but that helps with the whole quarantine thing. Nobody really wants to come around me, you know, so it's all strategic. Um, the baby's beard is also good. No, uh, yeah, baby Bronson is good. Uh, he is three months old just as of basically a couple of days ago. He's a talkative little guy and uh, so good. rocking and rolling. I appreciate you asking. So, so good. So, so good. So you guys listening, I was first introduced to Brett at Rockstock, actually. I don't know, two years ago, three years ago. I don't know. Are they all the same to me? Um, and he spoke. And at the time, he was actually talking about, not specifically, but also interest, introduced us to his book. So, Brett, I would love if you could introduce yourself to the people, because I think maybe some of my audience may not know, you know, what you do, uh, and then we can go and talk about the rest of the cool stuff you do. Sure. Yeah, I'll keep it brief, because I know people have better things to do than listen to my background. Uh, my name is Brett Bartholomew. I've been a strength and conditioning coach for over 14 years. I'm also the author of a best-selling book called Conscious Coaching. And uh, I also own a company called The Art of Coaching. So long story short, got into strength and conditioning after being hospitalized at the age of 15, um, nearly losing my life through a combination of factors, really made me uh, very interested in what it takes to take the body further, right? What the limits of the human body are. And worked in collegiate athletics for a while as a graduate assistant and also as a head strength and conditioning coach for a number of sports. And later on got into the private sector and started specializing mainly with working with NFL athletes, members of the United States Special Forces, uh, other members of the tactical community, UFC and baseball. And now I kind of have a hybrid business. So still work with athletes, um, but I also work with corporations and still the military on all things social science related, specifically ethical uses of persuasion, influence, building buy-in and people skills, essentially. How to be a more adaptable communicator. Dude, I have many questions. Yeah, many fire away. <laughs> I, I kind of want to pull from there because you said I like to pull like buzzwords, but what I actually want to go into first is one of the things that I love that I see you doing, and I think it's a question you get a lot, so you're probably annoyed with it by now. Um, and hopefully the intro you gave kind of gave people a little bit of an insight. But one of the questions I see you answering a lot that I love is, how do I become a strength and conditioning coach? Like, what do I do? You've given us, you know, very quickly your background, but if you could summarize that, and I know you're saying it all the time, but people are like, I want to like, I want to do this. How should I, how can I do this? What do you say to these people? 
Yeah, I just try to tell them if you want to be a strength and conditioning coach, the old way is broken. Uh, you know, in the past, a lot mm -hmm. of people would think if they get their degree, get an internship, get a certification, boom, they're going to start working with athletes and they're good to go. The reality is we live in a much more dynamic, volatile, chaotic, oversaturated world. And so, you know, just too many, too, too many people specialize and try to say, oh, I only want to work with division one athletes, or I only want to work with professional athletes, or I only want to work with high-end clientele. And really, I mean, it's just like acquiring motor skills. You need to get out there and get involved in a wide variety of demographics, coach under a wide variety of constraints, and you shouldn't really be bougie on who you're coaching and who you're working with. <laughs> um, you know, and then I also tell people that you better understand the social side too. Um, you know, there's so many coaches and therapists too. It, it doesn't matter. This is pan domain whether we're talking in the performance or rehabilitation world, or last year I even did some work with Wells Fargo and we've done some work with Facebook. There is not an industry in the world that doesn't need to learn how to become a more adaptable communicator. It is ultimately the thing that will tr help you transcend your foundational skills. So absolutely, you should learn the foundation of what you do, know the science of the body, understand biomechanics, understand all these things. But if you don't really deep dive in the interpersonal domain, and I'm not talking about like Tony Robbins, rah, rah. I'm talking about literally how to understand what drives people and how to manipulate or how to maneuver uh, how people tend to manipulate and their agendas and egos. The messy part of it all is a huge piece of it. So we're not talking about walking on coals. There's no, there are no trust falls. There's no coal walking. We do do... We do do a lot of role-playing scenarios and improv, not as an improv comedy, but improv in terms of, you know, adapting under constraints. So it might not be uncommon to have, you know, we, we were in Winnipeg recently and we had a physio that uh, we asked them to explain something to uh, members of five different generations. So we had five mm -hmm. people come up, we videotape it. Let's say they had a knee injury or it's returned to play for another protocol. He had to explain a certain phrase in five different ways as if it was a millennial, somebody that was part of Gen Y, somebody that was a baby boomer and somebody, right? So yeah, what we do is we, totally. see, we see how well they do that under constraints. We videotape that, we play back the video and we evaluate, uh, and this is part of what I'm doing for my doctorate. We evaluate them on seven key areas of interpersonal skills, whether that's the cadence of their speech, the tonality, um, the distance that they used, uh, proxemics of body language, haptics did they utilize touch uh how many questions did they ask and so we do put people on a lot of those types of scenarios but no no trust falls and no firewalking <laughs> can you keep going with that you said we what is this we what is this part of yeah so this is a part of what we call our art of coaching apprenticeship so we we looked at when i wrote my book conscious coaching Inevitably, there were some people that wanted to dive more deeply because that book really talked about what is what is the core of human nature beyond all of us wanting to be acknowledged or validated. How do you figure out what drives people? You know, how do you dive more deeply mm -hmm. than a disc assessment or a Myers Briggs? Right? Like, how can you really mm -hmm. understand archetypical patterns of behavior, and then most importantly, figure out how to adapt to each? Well, so I created an online course to follow that up called bought in. And then eventually people kept saying, well, we want more, we want more. And I didn't really want to go into the certification route because I've never been a big fan of kind of the idea that you can go to a workshop for two days mm -hmm. and all of a sudden be a pro. Yeah. So I'm really big on history. 
And you look at history and most people that wanted to become a master of their craft served an apprenticeship. Now, that was seven years, at least. Um, we, we can't, unfortunately, ask people to come away from their jobs for seven years. Can you imagine? But, yeah, right. Hey, uh, yeah, just uh, seven years. Yeah, you'll be good. That's it. You'll uh, be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, you're good. So, But we decided to call our weekend workshop the uh, Art of Coaching Apprenticeship. And that is, uh, that's, does that give more clarity to the, the we and what we are doing there? Absolutely. I just want to do it more so for the, the people listening. Uh, yeah, no, it's Kind great. of let them know what you are offering, which we will go over and link all in the show notes, you guys. I want to keep going with this. And one of the things that, how do I want to phrase this? If I take a step back, one of the things that I've always been concerned with is, you know, as an, as an educator, what people actually walk away with, yes, but then what they're actually able to apply. Mm. And I love what you're saying. And let's, I, I'm trying to write down so fast about what you're talking about, the things that you're grading them on or that you're assessing, the cadence, tonality, distance, haptics, yeah. all these things. That's phenomenal. How do you, or what techniques, what strategies are you using that allow people to actually internalize and apply these the skill set as opposed to kind of like memorizing it and kind of trying to make it like algorithmic and like okay i need to like do this and then do this is there an i mean no no there is the art of actually uh applying these things that you are grading and looking at oh for sure i mean what you're talking about is experiential learning uh a lot of times we created this because I got so tired of it, it was always an honor to go and speak and give like a 60 or 90 minute keynote, but inevitably mm -hmm. you knew you left that room and another speaker yes. was going to come up and another one yes. and another one. And it was just yes. death by PowerPoint. And mm -hmm. so the goal of this, and we, and we talk about it on our main page is we say, this is not a death by PowerPoint. Like you are in, it's a highly, it's a two day, highly interactive workshop. And it's not for strength coaches. It's not for physios. It's literally for anybody that's a leader, a coach, or a guide. We've had five people at our last one, which were outside of our domain, both of our collective domains. One was in the FBI. One worked for a logistics company. One was a school teacher where they had dealt with some school shootings and they're trying to reach kids at a different level. One worked in HR and then another one worked in administration within a university. And that's what's really unique about it is you know, since so little of it, I mean, we do enough PowerPoint to give people the background and the science and the resources and all those things. So they will get the slides. We are cognizant that certain people prefer that modal strength of, of mm -hmm. learning, right? That mm -hmm. analytical, but by throwing them into the fire and having them interact and partake in a variety of case studies, role-playing, video breakdowns, peer and group evaluations, it's a completely different kind of encoding. And a lot of the desire to do that came from when I looked at the leadership literature, they talked about how over 285 coach or leadership development programs uh, out of 285, only 6% actually focused on interpersonal skills in an interactive yeah. way. The majority of them were, again, just traditional education. So the facilitated output of this is the interaction. It is the improv. It is the role playing. It is the evaluation. Love because that. as we've learned, like most of our field just want the drop down list. They want to be told mm -hmm. what to say, right? It's like the joint by joint totally. approach or yep. sets and reps or, Hey, if we're working on agility and how many yards uh, yep. for speed and social interaction, isn't something where you can do that because when you think about how quickly 
situations change and the complexity of people in general, not only them by themselves, but the relationships between them and their perceptions, you have to get really good at understanding that none of that is cookie cutter. I mean, if it was, people would have the answer to keep us from getting divorced. They would have the answer for businesses (laughs) to like, you wouldn't even need HR departments because everybody would know exactly how to handle every situation. So point blank, when you look at what improv is, it is a form or like coaching or leadership, it's a form of regulated improvisation that's focused on something that's people-centered, situation-centered, and it's not really objectively determined as in there's one best way to do this. But at the same time, we do give them guidelines. We just tell people like, listen, here's the thing, right? Improv is guided discovery. I'm going to give you like seven E's uh, because everybody loves alliteration. They do. We, <laughs> we try to they teach do. them to establish the problem <laughs> or the social situation they're in. Oh, my client's a pain in the ass or somebody's not listening to what I'm saying or somebody, you know, any number of things. We try to get them to endorse the fact that there's not just one right solution. We don't want to create cardboard cutouts of, of people, right? We teach mm-hmm. them to expect mistakes, awkwardness, and frustration. Like you're not going to, there's, there's no winning every social situation. Oh, your flight got canceled. You think you're going to get booked on another flight? Not all the time, right? And <laughs> oh, they're not going to cover your hotel. And oh, mm-hmm. now they're not going to cover this. Mm-hmm. Then you need to embrace the variability of outcomes. We try to encourage them working through the process. And then just like most importantly, teaching them to explore their tendencies. Because so often I'll get people that say, why can't I do this? Or how do I build buy-in? And I say, well, Mm -hmm. what are you doing now? Like, how do you know you're not the problem? Because more often than not, that's the reality. We're we're the problem. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Experiential learning. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And it's, it's one of the issues that I see... I love that you hit that you come at it from the beginning and you say these things and you put them out there and you know your your uh, avoidance of that's like oh you're certified after doing this because mm-hmm. this takes time we're going to give you the guidelines the recipe and then you have to go and bake and then that's how you're actually going to learn how to do it right. it's one of the issues I have with things like residencies and they're like you're going to get three years of experience in six months and I'm like that's not science right. you have to like go and do the thing for three years and you go through all these things I love this Brett, I got a straight up question for you because I think we're lacking a lot of it right now with the current situation. One of the things you said that people who come to your these these courses, these uh, these weekend long courses that, that buy your stuff, that read your books, it's for they're for it's for leaders. What would you define a leader to be? So when you look at leadership, I think it has a lot less to do with one person and more about the interaction of the leader the quote unquote followers, the context and the history or nature of the situation that they're in. And that was something that I can't take full credit for. I found that when doing some research for my doctorate is, and and it, a light went off in my head because it's so true. If you think about it, we focus so much on leadership characteristics. We focus Mm -hmm. so much on thinking this is what a leader should be. This is how they should behave. These are all the things that, that make great leadership, but this focus on traits, right? If you think about there's, there's variance in cultural beliefs about leadership attributes. So in, in some cultures, things that are varied, for example, I'm going to be talking about like, here's some things that some cultures value and some cultures don't. Some cultures like their leaders to be risk-taking, 
um, very, mm-hmm. uh, or like even formal domineering. You can see some cultures that they want their leaders to be more cautious and reserved. Others, like in the Western world, we like our leaders more ambitious and dynamic. And so when you look at these things, you know, the, like people have to understand the difference between traits and behaviors. A trait mm-hmm. is like a distinguishing quality or characteristic. It's something that's stable. So Maestro is always a great listener. She's always fun to be around. She's always knowledgeable, right? And then behaviors are more um, selectively deployed. They're variable and contextual. So even though I know you're a very warm, uh, easy to get along with, incredibly interesting person, I would imagine there's a time, Maestro, where you can actually like drop the effing hammer and give somebody straight up like your your point of view, right? Selectively, Absolutely. even though you're very compassionate, you can probably also be Machiavellian. And we all can Absolutely. be. So when people think that, oh, there's one way to be a leader, there's not. Like apathy or I'm sorry, even things like empathy mm-hmm. are not good because if taken mm-hmm. too far, yeah. empathy becomes a blind spot to other yeah. things. Yeah. Contextual, I love it. So it's, yeah, it's contextual. It's not about leadership of qualities. It's about the fit between one's traits, their style, the orientation of the situation, and then even follower maturity. And, uh, you know, so you could just say leadership is context, communication, the quality of communication, and the fit between the two. That is great leadership. So the, everything that you're, that you're talking about, the, if I'm like, if I take a step back, what is the best way? I hate that. I already hate the way that sounds. No, you're right. What do you advise your the people that enter your your philosophy of they enter your world to learn? There's no way that they're going to conceptualize. They're going to grasp all of this. Like here, clearly, you have such a depth of knowledge with this. What do you? How do you direct these people in terms of like, hey, this is the best way to continue to learn and and have this repeated and repeated and repeated so that you actually understand this? Is yeah, there I- a way to go through your stuff or like, what do you recommend? For sure. We, I mean, it's a big reason why we tried creating the ecosystem that we did at artofcoaching.com. Like, because we know there's some people that want books, some people that want really Mm -hmm. immersive online courses, some that want live experiences. We even have a free field guide that everybody can download by going to getfieldguide.com. And all this is accessible directly through our free resources at artofcoaching.com, but it gives them 10 exercises they can do. So we've tried to be really conscious of giving people resources. So on our website, again, artofcoaching.com, people can download manual after manual. Um, but in both of my online courses, we have evaluation sheets, reflection sheets. Even on my podcast, we offer free reflection sheets. So people just got to do the damn work. They need to put themselves in situations and do the work because so many of them just want an answer. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to tell them is that's the issue. If you're thinking that your issues with people and the way you deal with people comes down to a trick or a hack, well, that's showing you that you're not understanding people, let alone social interaction, most effectively. And so I think people just got to get, and here's the last thing, right? Like when we talked to one coach and, and another physio, we were talking about how, look at what we ask other people to do, right? Athletes practice. And they don't just practice in an overt way, but we'll have boxers that will shadow box. Um, We'll have uh, football players do walkthroughs against invisible opponents. 
members of the military will do war games and role-playing games. What do coaches and physios do? Well, most strength coaches, you know, read about leadership or communication and then, Mm -hmm. you know, lift weights and then do their job. And then most physios will go to, you know, again, physical therapy related workshops or things about the body. And maybe they've read a, a couple books or taken a course on motivational interviewing. But those things are very different than learning how to interact in the moment under true context-ridden chaotic scenarios. So Mm -hmm. that's what they can do is they can come and be a part of something where we almost put them in an impossible circumstance. They've got to kind of work their way out of it. And then we give them a debrief and we give them action items. But none of that means anything unless they've experienced it. That's the point of experiential learning. That's it. Do the thing. Brett, what got you into doing this side of things and teaching this side of things and this? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of it went back to me being hospitalized. So at 15 Mm -hmm. years old, um, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was a competitive athlete. I played baseball and football and went to a high school that was very competitive in sports. And at the time, my parents were going through a divorce. And so working out and training became a really big like release for me. You know, it was a way that obviously fed my athletic desires and dreams, like to get better at my sport and stronger and faster. But it started taking more and more hold just to help me deal with the anxiety I was feeling as a high school kid and all that. Well, around that same time, a lot of my core group of friends got into some pretty hardcore drugs. I mean, like Mm. heroin, cocaine, meth. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't grow up in a part of town where like that was necessarily, Mm. you know, what you would expect. Mm -hmm. And you know, for the first time in my life, I just kind of felt lost. I felt like, all right, I I have no core social group anymore. These guys are all burnouts. And I didn't really want to go home a bunch. And so I just worked out obsessively. And I think over time, I don't think I know over time, it kind of manifested itself as this addiction that was helping me through depression. You know, I just Mm -hmm. I like Mm -hmm. training made me feel like it was a form Mm -hmm. of control. It was something I could do and it was a positive output, you know? And so anyway, I, I kept, I would train and train and train. Well, I got really restrictive about my eating too. I didn't know anything. I was 14 or 15 years old. This was a time where like, you just read what was in the muscle magazines. Muscle and fitness. Yeah. Right. At the time they're <laughs> like both low carb and low fat were in vogue. So I did both like any good extremist. So like imagine a fit. Well, like, <laughs> yeah, protein. I'm telling I'll tell you, imagine a 15-year-old kid working out three days uh, or three like times a day eating fat-free egg beaters, fat-free craft singles, no sugar added like Dan and yogurt and like cottage cheese and beef jerky. You know, like that was basically what I would eat. And so, yeah, I mean, long story short, one day I blacked out, woke up, heart, kidney, liver, all this in very bad state, internal organs just not functioning as they should. And I was put in a hospital, an inpatient hospital and stayed there for in total a year of my life. And to answer your question directly, how did I get interested in the people side? Well, what you saw, and this won't surprise most people who know the healthcare system, was even though you were around a lot of subject matter experts, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, very few of them wanted to get to know the people. We were forced Mm -hmm. to go to groups where basically if we didn't say what they wanted us to say, you were either given a higher dosage of medication or you were written down as disobedient and maybe you lost some kind of privilege. And I like to give your listeners context, this is a place where every day I was woken up at like 5.30 in the morning, your blood's drawn. They decide if you can shower based on your BMI of all things because the initial shock of hot or cold 
could have sent me into cardiac arrest because of where my heart was at the time. You sit in a day room, like which is a room surrounded by plexiglass almost, where you 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 can just sit. They don't want you standing or moving because you can burn calories through non-exercise thermogenesis. And every single part of your movement is controlled. You eat six times a day in a kitchen with nurses on both ends and a glass table so they can see if you're hiding anything or doing anything you shouldn't be doing underneath the table, whether it's hiding food or if somebody brought a weapon in for self-harm or something like that. And it was just insane. And what you saw when, when the nurses would leave is all the patients would talk about the real shit that was going on in their lives. So one guy was a junior Olympic wrestler and, um, you know, he had lost a match beaten by his father. And so, you know, that became a form of control exercise addiction to not, you know, deal with that. Another girl was like the middle of nine children and her eating disorder was a way to keep attention on herself. And another woman's husband had left her. So what you saw, Shantae, was it like all these people were in here for different reasons and none of them were, oh, I'm scared of pizza or, mm-hmm. oh, I think I'm really fat. Like there's always an underlying issue upstream, but none of those healthcare workers seemed interested in getting into that at all. Well, that was obvious when I got into strength and conditioning, you know, there's certain athletes that were reticent to do something in the weight room or do something in another context. And a lot of people just say, oh, they're lazy. Well, the vast majority of them weren't lazy. They just didn't understand or have the context of why they were doing certain things. So that's when it really hit the nail on the head with me of saying like, holy shit, everything I learned in the hospital is very much related to everything I'm seeing here. You know, you have to understand that so much of what we all do is part improv, part game theory, part influence. You have to make decisions under uncertainty You have to learn what drives people. And a lot of times you've got to make something out of nothing. And that only happens when you really get to know them and understand more aspects of human behavior. Yeah, no, 100%. Brett, what is this? Because if you guys follow him on social media, you'll see that Brett also posts, uh, you know, videos of him like working with athletes. And I love it because he's like, keep it simple. Like, yeah, master these basics. What does and this is a big question, but I know you're gonna have an answer. What does this look like what you're just talking about? Look like in like practical situation where yeah, these these athlete has this kind of stuff going on, but like, we have to train and like, this is this is we have these kind these kind of goals. How are you? And maybe it's a specific to the people you're working with intertwining this I know it's a soft skill I know it's an art um, but could you give us like a 30,000 foot view of what that looks like like in practice yeah like how are how are these soft skills get incorporated of like really knowing your athletes and then modifying things sure based yeah on well I that. think I think one thing people really got to understand too is even though communication is often thought of as a soft skill the literature behind uh, sociology psychology social influence and all that far predates anything we're doing from a performance or a therapy standpoint, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. it's interesting when we do consider them soft skills, despite the fact that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of articles substantiating different aspects of human communication and how those intertwine with everyday life, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. the foundation of what we know in marketing. It's the foundation of Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of behavioral economics in which people are winning Nobel prizes for. And so it may be a soft skill, but it's a hard science for sure. 
Um, And how we apply it, I mean, it's simple. I mean, people do it in their everyday lives. It's micro interactions. You know, I'm not sitting people down and having therapy sessions with them. You know, I already ask these people, you know, I give them instructions on certain exercises or, or protocols that we're doing. I'll ask them to rank their soreness. I'll talk to them about nutrition, whatever. Well, it's also nothing to like intertwine little questions about who is their favorite coach and why, what they like doing in their downtime. The key is using indirect approaches to get little bits of information over the long term. It's kind of like if people are familiar with like investing or economics, it's it's like dollar cost averaging. You don't go in hard and just start throwing a lump of money in one thing. You invest slowly in a wide variety of things over time. So, you know, you can be more formal about it. I've done stuff where I'll send my athletes a simple Google form. And, you know, let's say there's 30 guys, or you could do it with five, you could do it with one. And I'll say, hey, what part of the session resonated with you? And there's no more than five questions. It's super easy. And I usually got to gamify it because Mm -hmm. it can be easy for them to ignore it. So I'll say, hey, if you guys fill these out, you know, I'll let you do another set of arms on Friday, right? Or I'll take some, (laughs) you got to gamify it. But um, one of of those questions is just like, what resonated about today's session? Was it the competition? Was it the technical detail behind it? (laughs) You know, was it, you know, uh, when you guys work together in groups, you know, for the, uh, the team conditioning, what was it? And basically you'll start to see four kind of primary drives emerge, learn, acquire, bond, and defend. And so like acquire, those are people that typically like to learn, or it could be, um, uh, like even acquiring some kind of social status, like, I'm the fastest. I'm the alpha dog. We see these people even in our own domain, like the smartest person in the room. Acquiring is they just want to acquire something, right? Mm -hmm. Learn is self-explanatory. These people are also very analytical. Um, Now that could be learning about their place in the world. It could be learning why they have to perform something at a certain joint angle. It could be learning, you know, anything like that. Um, You know, what did I say? Acquire, learn, bond, or that's Mm -hmm. typically people that like working in groups. So when I'm working with NFL linemen, mm-hmm. they usually don't like these one-on-one races when we're doing competitions as yeah. much as they'd like a partner kind of sled sense. push relay, right? Or they like working as part of a unit. Um, and that could go into like, do your clients like working in small groups or do they like more one-on-one? Um, you know, if for business owners, a lot of times it's like, hey, do you have a workplace where people are more isolated or do you have a shared open kind of floor plan? And then finally, defend. These are people that are very loss averse. Um, these are people that you know typically are pretty defensive. Um, it could also be people that want to maintain their status, so they engage mm-hmm. in a lot of self-preservation. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So you know, learning how to ask gotcha. people the right questions, Shante, is the short answer. And then actually taking stock of that because you'd be surprised. Yes. Like when you know more about these people, it helps you relate everything you're talking about more into their language. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And I'm hoping the PTs, with, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, we're all trying to coach, but I'm hoping that the PTs most specifically are like, I see how I can utilize this in my practice. And I see why moving towards one-on-one sessions and cash-based sessions, or even if it's insurance-based, but that allow you to have this more interaction with, with your clients is a better thing. And then like Brett said, it's not like, oh, you have to sit them down and have like a freaking no. therapy session beforehand. Like it's very practical, all of this. Oh, and it's Seems like, it, it should almost be something that's not even noticed. 
Yes. You know, like uh, here's the thing. Most people already know, they've already been told the information they need. They're just not paying mm-hmm. attention to it. Yeah. You know, and so we've created totally. sheets for yes. organizations that lay out everything from as quotidian as, hey, where did this person grow up? I'm going to talk to somebody that grew up in mm-hmm. rural Iowa differently than East St. Louis. Yes. Um, you know, what were their hobbies? I had an athlete one time that no matter what would not open up to me. And I couldn't figure it out. And it was driving me nuts because I wrote the book on this. And then all of a sudden, one day, something was playing in the weight room. It was an Eric Clapton song. And it was not appropriate for the weight room. Like, God, I love Eric Clapton. That's fine, but not appropriate for the weight room at the time. And I'm like, yo, can somebody turn this off? And the guy was like, the athlete goes, what are you doing? And I go, turn in the music. And he goes, dude, that's Eric Clapton. It's one of the best guitar players of all time. And I'm like, and? And he goes, I fucking played the guitar for like 15 years, man. I love the guitar. And I'm like, interesting. And so where that led to is this guy was a very technical type person. He was a mixed martial Mm -hmm. artist, loved jujitsu, loved. Well, now when I started explaining things in our session in really big nerd terms or the technicalities behind it, he loved that. Whereas 90% of my other guys just wanted a global approach, right? They, They needed the big picture. And so it's, 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 it's three things. It's research, relate, and reframe. Ask the right questions and actually listen. Relate to them by summarizing and, and making sure that you use their words, you understand their learning style, you understand their communication preferences, and then reframe what you know with how you know they like to be spoken to. So good. So good. This is, you guys see why I brought this young man onto the podcast. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'm with you. I got the dry I'm mouth like, cough. I'm like scared to cough. And I'm like, we're in the age of Corona and I'm coughing. Oh gosh. Yep. So what I, what I want to uh, kind of keep going uh, in line with that is you've built this into a business. This is an art. This is a science, a hard science. You've taken all this and you were talking about before, which you guys, everything will be in the show notes. You got a lot of system, system, systematizing in here. You're like, things are streamlined. Things are looking I'm really good. I'm glad you recognize that. We've worked hard on it. I'm like, this guy's like, boom, 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 boom. This is amazing. How did you do that? And I'm asking, you can answer it any way you want, but I'm asking because one of the things I see is people trying, and this is what's going to happen, I think, moving forward after all this COVID-19 stuff, is people building their own businesses and, and getting, you know, moving from a hobby to a business. What can you tell us about that? Moving from a hobby to a business. Yeah, I mean, this your shit is like locked and tight, and I'm I'm guessing it didn't happen overnight. But how? No. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, <laughs> this is what's funny is as you say this, I was talking to a friend about uh, burnout because, mm-hmm. like, I'll be perfectly honest, we went so hard on this stuff in the four years since I went out on my own that I told my wife, and this is like. If your audience can't relate to this and they, they got to turn this off because I'm not ashamed to admit this, I go, hey, I pretty much don't want to do anything right now. I know I should be using mm-hmm. this time to do all kinds of no. things and update my material, but it's so good. Bro. I kind of just don't want to do anything because the reality is, is it's very hard and it's easy to get burnout and you have to be very smart about putting barriers on yourself. Uh, but my advice is simply this, right, is if you want to build something that lasts, You just need to do it brick by brick. Do not go all in so fast. I mean, a lot of this may look like it happened for me fast. This was percolating a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, my book, Conscious Coaching, was released in April 2017. 
it's now been translated into, well, by the time, depending on when this comes out, it'll be four languages, sold over 100,000 copies, but it's also self-published. Like no publisher mm. wanted to touch mm -hmm. it. And, mm. but that, that took three years. So my point with this is it's a, it's a period of super compensation. You do a lot of work up front and then it seems like nothing happens. And then if you're just consistent, I promise something will happen. Um, and it's never easy. It really is true that first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they join you. When I wrote my book, mm -hmm. so many strength coaches came at me and were like, oh, so now you're not going to talk about training anymore? Because for eight years, I lectured on training. And I used to post entirely on training. And now my Instagram is more just like communication, real life, no bullshit kind of stuff. Yeah. But like, it's amazing how angry people get at you when you decide to go all in on something. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, I would say just this year, more and more people were like, hey, dude, I didn't realize it. I was kind of too proud. Um, I was very in like their self image is so tied to who they are as a therapist Absolutely. or a strength coach. But then when they find themselves in a vulnerable situation, they realize that the social side is what they lacked. And uh -huh. yeah, so I, I just think that yeah. I think people, super compensation model, fitness fatigue, use that as inspiration for how a lot of that business will go is there's periods of blast and dust. And oh man, the only way that you weather that storm is through just like playing the long game. I think, what do you think? hundred percent. I love that you gave numbers there and I'm hoping the audience picked up on that. It's like the book took three years. He went on his own four years ago. He was doing eight years, eight years of stuff before that none of this is like weeks or months shit takes time like there's no way around it and it's it's work like, and i'd say too like it. i'd say too if it helps people again i just try to i try not to do the whole like oh life is perfect thing i'll be honest you're, <laughs> you are gonna have periods where you just like you don't want to work on it anymore like mm -hmm. i said i have no shortage of things to do on my to-do list right now yeah. and but you know what like i just i you have to listen to, it's interesting because we have this way of like grinding through things. But on the other hand, if you're creating something, you've got to be in a, a headspace that allows that incubation period to take place. Yeah. So if like, I hate when people say, oh, I've been, I've been working so hard. I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to do that. And it's just not working. And I'm like, yo, how long have you been doing this? They're like five months. Like, uh, what? <laughs> And I'm like, dude, you may not get a following for five. I mean, I posted on yeah. Instagram for five years and nobody gave a shit. There you go, Brett. There you go. You there know, look, you at, look at your audience. Like, this shit takes time. Like, it Your audience is ridiculous. Like, I am impressed by you, like, where the fact that, like, you have people that are so rabid about, like, your stuff and your personality. I remember when I saw you at the Rock Tape seminar – Everybody was running around being like, oh, it's the maestro. And I'm like, why don't I know this person? And everybody came out and they're like, ladies and gentlemen, the next person needs no introduction. The maestro, I'm like, I like who I suck. I have no idea. Nobody introduces me as they're like, hey, it's uh it's Brett. <laughs> the maestro and Brett. Lies. Lies now. This is actually a perfect segue because your book. All right, this is a big deal. People know this book. I see the pictures of it. It's a big deal with, with for good reason. Can and you were just, you know, you gave us some of the stats around it, but can you talk about the what's in the actual book? Not the not the publishing side of things, but if you want to. But Yeah, 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 the book. Tell I mean, me more it's about simple. The book. 
the book is is divided into sections very similar to Sun Tzu's Art of War, meaning you've got to know yourself first. So we do it like the, the first chapter is a lot of like, hey, why should communication matter? What does the science say? And we tried making the book a mix between something that was easy, enjoyable to read, but also, you know, supported by literature. And that was the that was pretty tricky because, you know, you wanted people to understand this isn't just a soft science, right? Like yeah, there's yeah, actually yeah. things of this. So the I'm sorry, the first chapter is all about like the meanings behind these things, some of the research. It leads you into the playing field. Like why why does this even matter? The first chapter after that then is is more about knowing yourself. Like what is a true like state of self-reflection? We call it the three stages of internal identification. Who are like who are you legitimately? Like why do you communicate and interact and engage with people the way you do? And getting beyond like the whole, oh, to make a difference or oh, because I care. Like, no, 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 no. Like a very clear, no bullshit way of like, do you really know why you're doing this? Do you really know what you think are your blind spots? Do you really know, you know, the ugly parts of yourself that can make people resistant to connecting with you? Because if you don't, if you really think everybody else is the problem, Mm -hmm. like that's the chapter you just got to stay on, you know, and that's everybody. That's me too, right? Like, so, and then the next chapter is all about, um, you know, knowing we, we use the term athletes, but just like I can read a book about Navy SEALs, I'm not a Navy SEAL, but I can apply things, right? I can read a book about yeah. Steve Jobs. I didn't make the iPhone. <laughs> I can apply, but we believe it or not, we do get people that are like, I'm not a strength coach. I don't work with athletes. Does yes. this apply? And I'm like, yo, do you yeah. work with people? Then yes. Um, so that chapter is more about understanding tendencies of other people. Why we, uh, for example, one part of it is about schadenfreude, which is a term of, why is it that we have this very ugly part of us that takes pleasure when we see other people we perceive to be threatening to us failing, whether that's Mm -hmm. another PT clinic or somebody Mm -hmm. that we thought was a fraud or something else, right? It could even be if you Mm -hmm. heard the Kardashians went bankrupt, there's going to be certain people that are just going to love that. Right. And uh, you're so right. Right. And so like we look at that because you see a lot of it in strength and conditioning there's so much competitiveness in the performance space because it's all about scarce resources. Well, so is getting somebody's attention, right? Getting somebody's Mm -hmm. attention Mm -hmm. is the most scarce commodity we have now in a world that is really post-scarcity. If you want movies, Netflix, you want music, Mm -hmm. Spotify, Uh, but how do you get engagement and what are the roadblocks? And then the next chapter is about, okay, now, you know some of the sticking points. Here's some of the personalities you're going to run into. So one could be like the royal. The royal is typically somebody who has this air of, you know, they can never do any wrong. Um, they typically, they think they're always in the right. These are people that typically, you know, maybe they were brought up with a silver spoon in their mouth, or maybe they just have had a lot of success relative early on. And so they think their shit doesn't stink. Mm-hmm. How do you get past that? There's there's the novice. This is somebody who, man, they're eager to learn, but you know they typically start to get easily overwhelmed because they dive too headfirst too quickly. There's the charismatic. There's the manipulator. There's all these different archetypes that are kind of, it's not judgments and we're not saying people fit into a bucket because archetypes are going to vary, right? Maestro, you're going to be very different if you and I are at my house in Georgia one-on-one then you might be in a whole crowd of people at a party in a castle in Lithuania versus, you know, you teaching a workshop in China. Like 
you're going to be different variations of yourself based on the cultural demands, right? But totally, we're still got to know kind of these base tendencies of behavior. And so that chapter breaks down how to recognize them, how to connect with them, all those things. And then finally is a whole chapter about tactics, strategies, mistakes to avoid. We wanted it to be really practical because I hate, I hate what happens so often now where you buy a book and it tells an interesting story and you know it's uh, then it gives you a couple tips high level and somehow it makes it on the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> Somebody gets a TED talk, but you're like, wait a minute, there were no tactics. You yes. just told me a bunch of inspiring stories about a doctor in Africa. Like, yep. how do I apply uh, this? Exactly. <laughs> so that's that's the overall. That's what we try to do with anything. Is like people can say my stuff is trash if you want, but you will not say it's not applicable because I've damn near almost like locked myself in a cabin in the woods to tear it down and make it applicable from the root to the fruit. Yes. The root to the, I never heard that phrase before. <laughs> You're I welcome. Like that. That's amazing. For the me. root to the fruit. Brett, why a book? What is the, what, ins, what, why, why a book? I don't know. Is that an answer? You know, <laughs> I just a very felt like fair I, answer. <laughs> the, the real answer is I saw a movie at 14 called the hurricane with Denzel Washington about a boxer that was wrongfully imprisoned. And basically, you know, these kids and this kid in Canada. So the movie goes, and it's based off a true story. Uh, the, the actual book he wrote is called the 16th round. This kid in Canada, like found his book and bought it for a quarter or something like that, read it and then convinced the people he was living with. Cause I think he was like a foster child oh. to go, move to America and try to free this man from his plight. And so I saw this movie and I was 14 years old and I like walked out and I was like an intense 14 year old, I guess. Cause I remember looking at my mom and I was like, I need to write a book and do something with my life. And <laughs> I think when I got, I think when I got out of the hospital too, people were just like, Holy shit, dude. Like you went from like 90 pounds and almost dying to, you know, doing what you're doing. You should write a book. And so I don't know. I think I just felt like I wanted to write a book. And the irony is now though, we live in this age where, you know, I don't know if people, the book has done amazing things. I mean, it made Amazon in totality, their top 100 bestsellers. But I think the issue with books sometimes, and the reason we went on to do course online courses and live events is they don't allow people to interact with it as much. So mm -hmm. we always tell people the book is just a starting point. We encourage people to do the book, if you want to dive deeper, do the online course. If you want to dive deeper, come to the workshop because it moves from like, all right, I just kind of, I'm, I'm kind of interested to, yeah, now I want to go all in. Does that make sense? It makes total, total sense. If they want to get the book, what's the best way to do that, Brent? Amazon. It's available worldwide, okay. Kindle, Audible, paperback. I think Barnes and Noble online sells it. Your neighbor probably sells it. Um, That's true. Literally, if you just type in conscious True. coaching in Google, you'll find no shortage of ways to buy it. If you want a signed copy, which I don't know why you would, my handwriting is awful. Uh, you can buy that off my website, brettbartholomew.net. We'll ship that to you and I'll spray some cologne on it. <laughs> oh, oh, well now, oh. now that you say that, I already have one, but maybe oh. I'll get a second. Well, I give you, I'm shipping one to you and it's just, it's, it's pummeled with Axe body spray. Cause I know that's what you <laughs> really like. Come on. I'm gonna start calling you Chad. So. <laughs> Chad with frosted tips. <laughs> this is 
Amazing. I, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time. I got two questions for you, and then I'm going to let no, you go. I'll be brief. Number one, you mentioned this in the beginning of... Actually, before I say this, guys, remember, again, all the links will be in the show notes. And if you okay. can't remember artofcoaching.com, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Like, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, maybe they're busy and they're in the car. But <laughs> exactly. Artofcoaching.com. All there. So you had mentioned this in the beginning, and I'd love for you to just elaborate that on it a little elaborate on it a little bit. Ethical persuasion. Mm. What does that mean? What can you tell us about that? I think it sounds really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at a lot. If you look at power, influence, persuasion, these kinds of things, you can't understand persuasion without understanding power. So the empirical definition of power is the absolute capacity of an individual, which is any of you listening, to influence the behavior or attitudes of one or more people at a given time, right? That your capacity to do that is power, right? When you look at persuasion, persuasion is when you have effectively leveraged that power. Okay. So it's a family of three things. If you look at power as the top and then influence is how one uses that power. And this is all part of my online course. We go through the nine common ways you can influence others. And it's all peer, from peer reviewed literature. It's not stuff that like Brett Bartholomew just baked <laughs> up, right? And then persuasion is the outcome of that use of influence. So um, the easiest way to think of it is you can only say you actually persuaded somebody when you used your influence well, when they actually changed their behavior successfully. If somebody didn't change their behavior as you intended them to or implored them to, then you did not persuade them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So persuasion is to power and influence what enhanced movement quality is to therapeutic interventions. Gotcha. I like it. I like it. I'm glad I waited to the end. Everyone's brain is already broken, but I like it. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's no way to non-nerd this, but no, I mean, it's... on the other hand, I mean, haven't we all, haven't we all had enough of the oversimplified shit that's out there for yeah. leadership and communication? Exactly. Like, do you guys really need another resource? It's like, Look them in the eye, shake their hand, remember their name, and most of all, be positive. Like, get out of here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just felt like it was time to dive deep into this stuff. Like, why are we sitting here talking about all the different ways we can address the nervous system and the body, but nobody looks at, like, the mind and relationships? Yeah, 100%. This is why I brought you on, my dude. This is why... I brought you on some real talk and a refreshing voice. I'm actually got messages already of people like, I'm so pumped about the episode. So this I'm is glad. Why hopefully, hopefully some people on. stayed till the end. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. You're already excellent at this stuff. You have the most addictive personality to, in the world. Like just watching you <laughs> and hearing you. I was so pissed when you didn't come to Danny Matei's thing, you know, because I was like, I don't get to hang out with her now. I know traveling and now i'm like lord knows when i'm gonna be able to fly again but i was so little like you were you were the <laughs> highlight of my life and i just sat in a corner and cried <laughs> as expected brent as expected <laughs> one last question for you because this is how i wrap up all of the shows what would you like to leave the people with in terms of a quote 
In terms of anything that you want, doesn't matter. Mm. I mean, I just think to summarize all this, more successful interventions are the result of more successful interactions. The end. So good. So, so good. Brett, thank you. No, I appreciate gonna... it. Was it all right? I know I rambled on some of the shit, but I blacked out. No, no, it was great. We're still, we're still rolling, so it was great. People listening, this is, this is what this is why I brought you on. One of the things, you guys listening, one of the reasons I, how I choose people, obviously I want to bring up people that I know and <laughs> that I'm close with, but one of the, the best things about having a podcast is that you get to hear that person and feel that person and really internalize things. And while I could sit here and do an episode by myself or like do a post and be like, Brett's really cool, Brett's really cool. There's something so magical about just hearing him and hearing the stories that he tells and hears the way that he speaks. And like you said, the cadence and how deep he goes with things and the patterns that emerge as he's like, I went deep with this thing. I went deep with this thing. I went deep with this thing. It really gives you a feel for people. And this is why I, I bring people on to try to, you know, do, you know, get a little bit of a variety in there. So Brett, thank you. You got a kid and a beard and, and things to do and more books to write and shit. So thank you for taking the time. Yeah, it's my really. pleasure. And thanks everybody for listening. Appreciate you guys. You guys listening to Echo Brett, thank you. We know you could have been doing anything and you chose to listen to us. And for that, we are both endlessly, endlessly, endlessly grateful. I'm not going to ask for any likes or subscriptions or anything like that. Right now, things are kind of crazy. So if you know someone who could benefit from this or maybe just needs a little timeout from all the craziness, I'm going to ask that you send them this episode. Whatever you're using, Spotify, whatever else this is on, Stitcher, iTunes, whatever. Send it to them. Give them something else to think about. All right. Officially wrapping it up. Until next time, friends, Brett and Maestro, 